Energy poverty impacts one in five people. For children, this means they don't have access to lights to read or study by after dark, limiting their opportunities. Solar Buddy is here to change that, and they're doing it with the gift of light. Solar Buddy's innovative corporate program is inspiring, fun, and educational. Through it, you'll learn about energy poverty, renewable energy, assemble your very own solar light, and pen a handwritten note. The lights and letters are then gifted to children living in energy poverty. I recently distributed Solar Buddy lights in PNG and witnessed firsthand the difference a solar light can make. Visit solarbuddy.org and join the growing community of light givers. The future is brighter with Solar Buddy. Welcome to Goodwill Hunters. Here, we'll explore the ultimate question, how to use profits for purpose. It's been said business must help solve the global challenges we face. In this podcast, we explore how. How can the private and not-for-profits work better together? What truly constitutes aid and progress? And how can we transform international development? Here, we talk with the thought leaders, the game changers, the intellectuals, and the campaigners. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn, and this is Goodwill Hunters. Hello, and welcome to episode 40 of Goodwill Hunters. Today on the show, we have Adam Carroll. Adam has been at EY, Ernst & Young, since 2008, including in the New York, Sydney and Perth offices. And Adam is now a partner in the Climate Change and Sustainability Services team of EY. Uh, In addition, Adam is a regular on the drum uh, and is a well-known thought leader and personally one of my own favourite thought leaders. So I'm very grateful to have Adam on the show. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Now, I should note before we start that we do work together. Um, you're my boss. So. <laughs> it doesn't feel that way, to be honest. I, think, I, I know I'll end up working for you pretty soon. Oh, that's a nice thought. Um, but I think that's an important disclaimer to make, that, um, that I am at EY, so we'll try not to have the conversation too focused on EY, but of course okay. it is a big part of both of our lives. Um, so Adam, I, mm. where I want to start with this conversation is when we, you, you actually played an important role in this podcast, perhaps without even knowing it. Oh gosh. Um, mm, mm. so when mm. we first met, uh, it was January, 2018 and I had just made the decision to leave the not-for-profit sector, which was a sector that I thought I would work in for a very long time. And I decided to come to the private sector because I felt like that was where I could have the bigger impact uh, on on charities and and have the social impact that I wanted to have. And I had a conversation with you about that and I felt very reassured that I was making the right decision. So I want to start there, going back to that conversation. What do we in the private sector have to offer to the charitable sector? Well, I mean, I didn't, first of all, I didn't know I'd, I'd, I'd mm. had to role in this decision I, I, I'm slightly terrified because you know my, my views on things can kind of vacillate but I, I think look I, I like you um, didn't expect to find myself in the private sector I really had a vision of myself particularly during school and in university even that I um, would do anything but wear a you know a dodgy you know charcoal suit that you can see me wearing at the moment um, and, and so I I it wasn't obvious to me. It was an obvious outcome to me. But then and, and after doing my postgrad in international development, I started dabbling in the not-for-profit or multilateral sector. 
and um, found it to uh, have a lot of the issues that um, I thought it would be immune to, like vanity and and I was very naive, obviously, right? Vanity and and, and politics um, and moral compromise and, and all the things that didn't exist in this kind of um, noble world I imagine myself, which was a not-for-profit sector, which isn't in any sense to, to tar the whole sector with that brush. But I, I very quickly kind of, um, the, the, the sheen came off that sector. And it was at the same time that the, the mining industry in particular had um, uh, sort of really jumped on the bandwagon of sustainability and human rights. And I thought, okay, well, here are these mining companies operating in poor regions of the world. They've got a specific asset They've got a reason why they need to invest in local community development. What if I jumped on that bandwagon, so to speak? And um, I wouldn't say the logic has played out entirely as I anticipated. Of course, the private sector is replete with as much politics and narcissism, probably more narcissism than any other sector of the economy. But I think I think in the private sector we do, if we have anything to offer, and this might sound meagre, it's a deadline. Like in 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 the in the professional services sector, you, you get you know two months to solve a problem, and, and I think that might be a discipline that we that we have. And I, I don't know how many people in the in, in the not for sector I will enrage by saying that, but I think it is a it's a it's a it's one thing we we have, which is we have to move on. This is in the consulting space in particular, we have to roll on to the next job. So in the very least, we bring you know the, a kind of mindset where the product won't be perfect. The product will be the product of a, of, a, of a portion of time, but that you have to reach an outcome because we have a contract, and so we have to write a report. And at the very least, that there is that you know that that bookend to the process there. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. That's a very practical thing that we bring to the charitable sector, isn't it? Like a deadline. It's it's very. Um... Yeah, I know. And, and the thing is, we wouldn't we wouldn't bring anything romantic. Like we don't have, there is no kind of romance, and I, I'm not some kind of neo Friedmanite that would ever suggest that the private sector brings greater kind of acuity or um, self discipline, or that you know um, that by virtue of it being market based, that the solution is somehow more lasting. I don't. I, I believe that less and less, and, yeah. and so I, I, I don't believe there's some kind of alchemy to um, profit motivated private enterprise that makes things better. I, I truly don't believe that. And, and in many respects, I worry about the convergence of the public and private sphere. And this is when I worry, God, maybe I was in a particularly good mood that day when I met you, but I, I don't, I'm, I'm, no, I'm not sold on the point of the upsides of private interventions into public problems. And I know I've mentioned a book to you recently, and if your listeners should read it if they haven't already, um, Winners Take All by, and I'm, I'm going to try and get it right, Giria Hadas, which really uh, articulately explains the problem of um, the private sector trying to solve all the problems of the public sphere. Wow, that's that's really interesting. I think that's particularly interesting because a topic that's been uh, very front of my mind recently is where and how we're applying private sector thinking to the public sector. And there's been a real push lately around concepts like uh, consolidation, mergers and acquisitions, like this really classic um, private sector thinking of 
what's going what's going to enable us to grow right that charities have historically mm. not embedded um, into their business models and now we are seeing more interest in the charitable sector around consolidation and scale and sustainability and it's these concepts that have always been classically private sector and now mm. we're telling the charitable sector to apply them so is there I mean I admit I'm a fan of it but do, is there a danger to that there is this cycle a broader economic cycle in which consolidation and demerger makes sense. And, and I think it's, I think it probably makes sense that there is opportunity for consolidation in, in, in the, in the not-for-profit sector. The private sector, however, has fully exhausted its period of consolidation and the private sector desperately needs a wave of demerger. So I, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't say that um, the private sector provides a good template of success in knowing when it's the right time to stop Consolidating, the, the the private sector has um, uh, ha, has allowed itself to become so oligopolistic that it actually flies in the face of capitalist doctrine. And, and what we desperately need in our in, in our economies is competition and, and and competition of ideas. And we really lack that in the private sector at the moment. And I I think uh, and this is a controversial thing. For someone that works in a large consolidated company to say, but we're, we're, we're approaching a point at which antitrust regulators, competition regulators are going to have to come into the private sector and start breaking stuff up, you know, and you've already seen this in relation to some of the major tech companies and it's going to keep growing and it's necessary. And the trouble is we've got a lot of executives in this, in our marketplace whom are um, top line growth has been the be all and end all of success. And so you've got people pursuing top line growth as if it's the proxy of all things good and I wouldn't want the not-for-profit sector to make that mistake. Now, obviously, there are economies of scale. Obviously, there's you know there's safety in in, in numbers, if you like, and and I think, you know, it, there is better you know opportunity to kind of leverage a, a stronger balance sheet in the not-for-profit sector by some degree of consolidation, but learn from us and don't go too far. Yeah, mm, I think that's really wise. It's it's. Funny you say that because I posted an article on LinkedIn last night about why more charities should consolidate mm. and it sparked a really interesting conversation and my greatest fear in life is online hate. So I, I posted I it. <laughs> it terrifies me. So I very deliberately shut down my laptop last night. I didn't open it and I went on this morning and to to my surprise, there were a lot of really positive and, and interesting comments, but there was one comment from someone that said, Sure, this is all good and well, but there's mm. plenty of evidence to prove that 80% of mergers in the corporate sector actually result in a loss of value. And how do mm. we know that that's not going to happen to the charitable sector? And I was so shocked and I replied and I said, mm, can I see the research, please? <laughs> and sure enough, five minutes later, there it was. Yeah, and look, I, I, I don't think your thesis is wrong, right? I, I really think in terms of the consolidation cycle of the not-for-profit sector, you are correct. There is opportunity still in consolidation. But yeah, after a while, a lot of M&A is just lazy growth. Like you, you, you've, got to, you've got to grow the top line and so you've got an opportunity to try and somehow do that organically by virtue of good ideas or you can just acquire good ideas or acquire another company. And, and it is... Um, you know, it makes sense for a while, but then it, it does. It, it, and there's, I worry that there has been a commensurate drop in R&D in the private sector in parallel with industry consolidation. You know, and, and, and these large companies are becoming so powerful 
that they spend a lot of their time playing in the financial economy, buying back their own shares, for example, as a way in which, you know, executives can enrich themselves as distinct from good old fashioned, better products and services. So I think, you know, for what it's worth, a word of caution to the public sector in that area is just is to say, look, you know, it's okay, grow, you know, grow and amalgamate, etc. But don't do it at the expense of ideas. And I think there's the, 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 that awful corporate word synergies that we use around MA. I think it, what, what ought to be most synergistic is the capacity for new entities coming together to kind of spark new ideas and not simply have a bigger balance sheet. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I agree with you. Staying on the point of charities before we move on to corporate responsibility, mm. you, you met Bob Geldof recently. I'm going to start yeah. the question with that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and in the lead up to to meeting Bob, you wrote an article on how globalism doesn't mean what it used to. And you made mm. the really interesting point that in the 90s, it seemed as though we had more time for the developing world. And now, I don't know if we're desensitized. I don't know if we have a generosity shortage. Uh, what I do know is the statistics, which which prove that charitable giving is at an all-time low in Australia mm, um, mm. since 1983. This is this is the least we've ever, uh, well, charitable giving peaked in 1983 and it's been steadily declining since then. Mm. What What is it? Like, what, what happened? Yeah, I, I, you know, I, and I'm getting old now, I'm almost 40, so I, I, I'm in that nostalgic phase of my life. So I know I look back on things with rose-coloured glasses. But it struck me that the 80s and 90s, people had a stronger sense of their own citizenship, I think. And, and by virtue of that, um, the, the um, comparatively poorer living conditions of other people around the world kind of meant more because there was a kind of moral responsibility that was born of citizenship, particularly citizenship in a developed country. And things like the 40-hour famine and things like that just ha had greater um, uptake for that reason. Whereas now we, we tend less to see ourselves as citizens and we see ourselves as employees. And as employees, we intuitively adopt the same sense of permanent vulnerability that you see in markets where you're only as good as the next ASX um, outcome. You know, you're only as good as the next quarterly results. And this sense of kind of <clears throat> permanent vulnerability has permeated society where Western society, where, where, where we really don't pause as much and acknowledge how remarkably well off we are. We're kind of permanently anxious that it could all be taken away in the next downsizing or in the next phase of kind of economic contraction that, that we're also, yeah, we're also calibrated to the jitters of the market that people feel as though that they don't have the capacity despite our since 1983, significantly increased household wealth because it's we worry that it's not really enough, you know, to, to be able to look after our loved ones, let alone care more about those in, in obscure foreign countries. It, 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 it does, it, it troubles me. Um, and, and it's funny that from that point onwards, there aren't too many more Bob Gildos that have, you know, popped up mm. to, to, to fly the flag at that. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if, um, I mean, I think the hypothesis that's often put forward is that we have been in a very extended period of slow economic growth. We haven't had a substantive wage increase in a very long time in Australia. And is that contributing towards this unwillingness to give? But I don't think it is. I, I, don't, I don't think it is that because I think 
I mean, there's not a strong correlation between the amount of money people give to charity and their salary. Um, Mm. So I think that kind of disproves the hypothesis that it has anything to do with how much money you actually have. So what does it mean for charities? Like what would you say to a charity that's still pinning its fundraising hopes on the general public? Wow. I mean, I I would say that um, the, 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 We've got this this theory now that everything has to be a win-win. And that came out in that book I referenced earlier, that this idea that everything's a win-win and so we focus on those things that we can do well by doing good. Um, and I, I, would, I think that in reality, people's commitment to others isn't a product of there being some kind of synergistic win-win for everybody. It, it ought to come from a sense of duty. It ought, it ought to come from the really simple concept of those that are better off owing something to others. And, and we don't really feel as though we owe a debt anymore, I don't think. I, I don't think we have a sufficiently universal sense of our own good fortune to really... Um, we've all become very culturally relative, right? Like for some... Again, I know I know this is nostalgia, but I, I, but I, I had the sense that when there was that nightly coverage of starving children in the Horn of Africa, that there was some sense of comparability at that time and and that I have to be able to benchmark my own good fortune against that misfortune and then, then that and the sheer delta of that benchmark means that I have some kind of moral obligation to contribute, however, in whatever small way. But somehow, and, and part of that was, was part of the early days of globalism, the kind of that, that post-Berlin Wall type um, sense of kind of bonhomie, at least Western bonhomie, that we kind of solved all the great nationalistic problems of the world and that we're all living in this in a kind of um, a, a, a future devoid of arbitrary divides between human beings. And, and, and we're so quick to kind of deride centrism and globalism these days that we forget that it achieved something kind of beautiful in that time. But latter globalism has become, it, somehow while we have global businesses, it, the the actual thinking has retreated at a very suburban level. I think in parallel to the sense of this loss of citizenship, this perception of citizenship, that life is lived at a very suburban level. It's based upon your mortgage and your kids' school fees and this sense of this competition that, as you say, it permeates people's lives even when they earn a fortune. They act and behave as if they their, their circumstances are so contingent that they can't devote themselves in any even in a small way to the to the to the well-being of others yeah wow I, I agree with you I think the last election actually was quite emblematic of that whereby mm. franking credits became yeah. the election issue like above anything else it I I've spoken to a lot of people who involved and not involved in the election who have said franking credits was this year's election issue. And I always find that hard to believe, probably probably in part because I don't fully understand what they are. So it's hard to understand why that was the election issue. Yeah, maybe, maybe, not anyone. I don't even think I think I do sometimes and then I hear something. But, I mean, I, I, I think that's kind of to your point that, that a very domestic household issue was the issue that defined how a very large proportion of people voted in this election. Yeah. Well, it used to be, thinking purely on the basis of self-interest, used to be a kind of 
um, you know, socially unacceptable thing to do. Somehow we've turned self-interest into something of which people are encouraged to feel proud and something we, 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 we equate now with the quiet Australian is someone that operates premised on the idea of self-interest, which is, I mean, God, I hope it's not true because it's tragic if it is. But the, I, I did find the last election astounding. If it, if it did turn on the issue of franking credits, it um, just shows how eroded our politics is that we can so easily acti- activate people based upon a very cynical appeal to self-interest. You know, you, you look at the consequences in terms of people's share portfolios over the last 24 hours as a consequence of China's currency manipulation, for example, and how far markets have dropped. These fluctuations in the market would greatly dwarf any of the personal financial costs that people would experience via the removal of franking credits, right? Which is which is a complete fiction, by the way. It's a completely um, fictional construct, um, you know, that, that, that people ought to be due these things. Um, and it, it, it's funny to me how, how we, we, without really thinking about it, people can be encouraged to feel as though, you know, minor um, uh, changes to their standard of living. We magnify these things out of all proportion. And then it's so easy for someone to say, oh, Adam, it's very easy for you to say you're not retired, you don't exist on the basis of your kind of superannuation portfolio. But, but, but you know, these are these kind of easy taboos that we uh, throw on people when they challenge um, people's greed by saying that they're somehow elitist. There's nothing elitist, I don't think, in challenging people on the extent of their self-interest. No. No, I agree with you. Where did Bob stand on these issues? Bob obviously doesn't come down to the minutiae of um, franking credits and it's in the fact of the world. He... he I mean, he's a hard man to pin down. I didn't probably spend a lot of time with the guy, but I mean, he he is someone that is at once worried about the trajectory of the world, and he likes to um, draw heavily on the themes that I wrote in that piece of, of, of W. B. Yeats and his, you know, emotive and graphic depictions of the world falling apart, the centre cannot hold the falconer, cannot heal the falconer, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Everyone's probably heard those those lines. So he 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 does see eerie um, uh, characteristics of the periods pre both the First World War and the Second World War to our current environment today. Um, at the same time, though, he, he, he's, um, he's not a catastrophist and he accepts that in every major kind of lurch forward in history that there are periods of anxiety that by and large over time, um, you know, kind of sort themselves out. Um, but, but he does make the point that... When, when major clashes, civilizational clashes or economic clashes sort themselves out, it might seem calm from the vantage point of 100 years or 1,000 years, but in the lived experience of people that are going through these major kind of undulations in history, that impacts the lives of millions of, of, of people. Um, so it, it was a sobering experience for a man that's seen a lot of the world that he is duly worried about us backsliding into selfish, nationalistic rhetoric, of which the past couple of days in America um, betray in, in terrifying detail. Okay, I think that's a good segue into talking a little bit more about the private sector now. So I'm going to quote you to you um, from um, the EY Human Rights Commission report that you were involved with writing. Yep. 
And you said human rights will become an increasingly universal benchmark for assessing the capacity of an investee to maintain their social licence into the future. So my question from that is when did human rights become the domain of businesses and not just charities and advocacy groups? Good question. I think human rights has become more important because, as you say, saw with the Royal Commission and various other controversies, what's become more important is the appropriate use of power as distinct from legality. We've been through a period, particularly in this country, of such political and economic stability that legality became kind of proxy for propriety, that if you're following the law, by and large, you weren't going to fall foul of social norms at the same time. But, you know, by virtue of the conversation we had earlier about sort of industry consolidation and the power that is now in the hands of corporations relative to individuals, that that power is so significant that the law really doesn't help as much as it used to in the context, say, of privacy or, or, or just, um, you know, uh, industrial relations even. And that what matters more is a is an organization's capacity to acknowledge its own power, to, to acknowledge the, um, the legitimate usage of that power. And um, I think human rights is the best kind of framework to do that. That, that. that human rights, you know, if you believe they're universal, it ought to be the benchmark about how, about the legitimate use of power in relationship as distinct to basically what you can get away with under the law. That makes a lot of sense. And so how are you seeing that play out in in businesses now? Um, how are you seeing businesses take on, uh, acknowledge that power and take on that responsibility? Uh, it's, it's, it is an uncomfortable time for boardrooms in this regard. The, the boardroom Australia is very traditional. They have risen to their role under an unprecedented period, as I say, of economic stability and economic growth, which is not to you know, detract from their their intelligence or foresight, but nonetheless, um, some of these concepts are quite uncomfortable to boardroom Australia, where, where they are used to just having to sort of follow the law and and being uh, expected to be able to uh, m- more clearly execute moral judgment as opposed to commercial legalistic judgment is rubbing a lot of people the wrong way. I think they will rise to the challenge and I think the Royal Commission and the, the AFTA report and various other things that have held executives accountable for ethical judgment as distinct from legal judgment um, will make a big difference. But but it, it's not going to be an easy transition. Um, and there are so many people that, that worry that, that by making decisions on moral grounds will somehow unravel the kind of alchemy of capitalism and that uh, capitalism cannot accommodate to people making moral judgment because if, you know, as, as if everything will kind of implode if that happens. But slowly I see business getting accept, accepting of the fact that, um, that it, is, it is wise long-term decision-making to be able to understand if what you want to do uh, is supported by a kind of a, a, a logic, a human rights logic as distinct from how, how a kind of particular jurisdiction might behave at one point in time. Yeah. So, so to loop that back to the quote from earlier, when you say it's wise decision-making, do you mean it's uh, economically wise decision-making or it's just socially wise decision-making? 
I think it's, you know, again, I, I want to hold myself accountable for my comment before about not, you know, making everything about a win-win situation. So, so I don't think it has to be um, economically beneficial. That, that ought be what's important. What ought to be important is the, the sheer morality of a decision. But that said, you know, I, I think economically being able to, to be considerate of human rights in your decision-making will make economic sense for corporations because I, I expect over the next five years, it, it, so I think, I think, sadly, Trump will win the next election. Um, but if he does not, and if Warren or Sanders or even Biden gets in, but, but even in the next four years that follow, and when um, Boris Johnson is replaced, if not by Corbyn and somebody else, there's going to be an equal and opposite reaction to the conservative right, which will be a kind of Rooseveltian interventionist left that are going to take license from an angry public to intervene in economies in a way they haven't had a right to do since the kind of, you know, Second World War period. And, and there are very few businesses that are used to that. There are very few businesses that would, would have, that, that have any real sense of an angry um, state or civil society curtailing the power of business. But in, in an environment where things like AI and process automation, various other things are only going to make businesses' power more acute. It will only hasten the point at which society eventually pushes back. And so I think those, those businesses that are clever enough to genuinely self-regulate and genuinely read the tea leaves, I think particularly, say, from a privacy perspective or other areas, to say, look, we're going to draw the line here rather than try and wait to find that point which, you know, um, you know the abyss peers back. Um, will be the one that will be more successful in, in, in a very politically uncertain future. Yeah, I think the regulation point's a really interesting one. We had Amit Singh on the show back in February, and at the time Amit was the global head of public policy at Uber. Nope. Um, prior to that, Amit was the senior economic advisor to both the Rudd and Gillard governments. So he'd had a lot of experience on both sides of the coin around regulation. And Amit spoke about how Uber, which which is very business model, um, grew out of uh, existing outside of regulation um, in the last few years, had changed hack and had instead tried to embrace regulation and really mm. tried to work within regulation very actively. Um, and whether or not that proved successful for them is is a separate conversation, I think. But um, this push towards not just accepting regulation, but actually embracing the regulation, both self-regulation and jurisdictional re- regulation. Mm. Where does where does that fit in? I mean, what would you say to a business on that? Well, it's, it's funny. Um, you, it, your listeners would have noticed in the past couple of weeks a conspicuously large number of Australian corporations suddenly re-enter the market and appeal for a carbon price and appeal for more um, government intervention to address climate change, which is kind of, which is, you know, for those who have a long memory of the corporate response to climate change, find this a bit amusing, albeit welcome at the same time, because finally a lot of companies have looked into the reality of climate change and they've seen that there is no way on this earth that we're going to find some savvy technological solution to this problem, that ultimately these things will be a product of um, the hearts and minds of an engaged population. And so all of a sudden, having exhausted every other opportunity, they're now saying, oh, God, we really do have to, we really do need a carbon price. 
we do need coherent long-term structural government policy in relation to climate change. And so I think, you know, which again, which is welcome, but I think business has to hold itself to account for the role it has played in feeding this public fear of structural reform. And, and if you look at the, how successfully, for example, the mining tax was defeated, the miners were able to get the Australian public, even the Australian public that had no direct relationship with the mining industry, to feel as though, you know, their, their wagon was hitched to the corporate star and, and that um, and that it was better to let pri the private sector play its course absent of too much regulation um, to, to, to uh, th then risk some form of structural intervention in the form of what at the time was the CPRS. And we, we, we have to we have to correct for that. We have to play a role in actually reassuring the public of the capacity of the private sector to ride out structural intervention because um, we, as I say, and particularly the Australian business councils are, are almost singularly responsible for this terror amongst the public of, of, of a reformist agenda. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. To stay on the topic there of business responsibility now, um, I want to talk about the sustainable development goals and sort of bring this back to international development um, because I think a, a large focus of this show is, is looking at the structures and the responsibilities for international development and for reforming our international aid agenda. A topic that we do talk about quite often is the sustainable development goals and how the capital that's required to actually achieve the sustainable development goals doesn't exist in the not-for-profit sector. Mm. It exists in the private sector. And so there's a very, if we are to achieve the sustainable development goals, um, there is a clear impetus for the private sector to play not just a role, but a central, a leading role in mm. achieving those goals. Um where do you stand on the SDG agenda and how do we how do we galvanise the private sector even more than they already are towards achieving them? So I, I maintain hope in the SDG agenda. I remember the Millennium Development Goals and when they came out and I think um, commercial and public sentiment towards them has atrophied since then, obviously. And, and I actually was looking the other day from the kind of the Brundtland Commission onwards and the original kind of coining of the phrase sustainable development and how much that language embodied concepts of duty as distinct from a kind of win-win agenda. Um, but I, I think, so I agree with you, I think the private sector does hold the, 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 the capital to tackle some of these things. A big question is, is that capital best extracted as tax um, as opposed to uh, encouraging the private sector to spend it in the in, in the interests of profit. Obviously, it has to be a mix of both. We can't forget the tax piece. Um, and, and I think um, so. So uh, another uncomfortable conversation the private sector has to have is, is that if it wants the government to be able to facilitate the structural reform that it now realises it needs, the government has to be able to fund that. And so we need to see a greater tax on corporate profit around the world, as controversial as that for some reason, is, is a statement. Um, at the same time, yes, I think the private sector does need to be um, activated on this issue. And I, and I see an encouraging amount of interest in this from the banks and investors. You know, I, I particularly kind of Western European or Scandi investors, there is a, um, a noticeable degree of interest among asset owners in these issues. 
you know, and, and, and it's slowly coming back to that idea of universal ownership, that if you are a big enough asset owner, that you are exposed to so much of the global economy, that ultimately, if you have a longer term view, it does make sense for you to invest in these things. And so I think I, I think you, you, we're starting to push on more of an open door around getting capital to see the merits in not just impact investing, but um, playing a more active role in the realisation of the SDGs. So in that sense, should the sustainable development goals be taken literally? Like, should we be literally trying to achieve, I think it's 18, the 18 mm. goals that are there? Or are they more emblematic of the efforts we need to see the private sector take towards some general social reform? I, I think we should be trying to achieve them. I, I think if we cannot commit to those goals, then as grandiose as this sounds the kind of civilizational experiment has failed if we if, if if the sdgs are used as an exercise for companies to just sort of map themselves against them and then it doesn't really mean much but but if we, you know what what does human civilization mean if at the point at which we are parts of the world are just awash in wealth that previous generations couldn't possibly understand why can't we eradicate poverty you know why, why can't we um, um, a strike a harmony between the biosphere and the global economy. Like I, 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 I and, and it, it, you know, it's a shame that these things have become a bit abstract and, and aspirational. These ought to be basic fundamentals of, you know, what's the bloody point? If, if, if we, if we strive and strive and strive, and if human civilization continues to evolve, but if we have to let go of the idea of something as basic as universal gender rights, for example, or female child maternal health then I, I, I sort of struggle to wonder what it's all about. What's it all for? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's a great point. Okay, so the last question I want to ask you, I used to ask all of our guests this question at the end of an interview and I found that um, it really put people on the spot so I stopped doing it because it felt a bit mean, but I'm going to do it with you. It. <laughs> um, and the question is what does success look like in 10 years? Um, and I don't, I don't necessarily mean for you personally, whilst that mm. would be interesting and feel free to answer that as well. Um, what does success look like for us as a private sector and maybe even for us as society? Like if you could blue sky dream, what, what mm. things look like 10 years from now, what would it be? Oh, that is a good question. I mean, personally, you know, I just have images of myself um, in some, you know, staring catatonically over some plane in an armchair with like a, a Hemingway novel and, you know, and, and, and some whiskey. Um, it's weirdly where I sort of see that that's kind of Nirvana for me, um, like some kind of exhausted returned kind of soldier of fortune has had an interesting life and can now just kind of uh, just sit and pontificate and annoy the family. That's, that's my goal. You know, more broadly in terms of success, I, 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 uh, you know, I, I want to see um, – there's so many things I want to take out of the current system, but if it's anything, it's this kind of um, dreary conformity that dominates um, Western commercial society, that, that, that there are so many kids that go to university and have it drummed into them that the only – that they make themselves functional – by virtue of being deemed functional by a corporation in a role. And then we see this massive bifurcation between people's personal sentiment and that which they bring to work. 
and it's an arbitrary distinction. And I, Nirvana to me is thus getting over ourselves a little bit and, and, and thinking that, um, you know, just by virtue of working in a, in a public or private sector, we are not defined by our job. I, I would like to see, um, yeah, a, a greater sense of kind of rebellion you know, where people are, have a greater confidence of expressing themselves and not hewing to these kind of really staid protocols that you and I both know. Um, we all listen to this. The, 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 the spectrum of human intelligence is so greatly constrained by this, this meagre vocabulary we give ourselves in the private sector in particular about what we can talk about and how we can express our ideas. And, and so, yeah, success to me would be a population that has... Um, isn't frightened by its unlimited intellectual potential and doesn't constrain itself by observing these the arbitrary norms that we observe in particularly the, the corporate society and, and are um, you know much more expressive of of their their point of view that that to me would be success yeah wow and I think that's a really exciting thought of what our private sector would look like if it consisted of more individuals working for companies mm. but retaining their individualism yes exactly citizens and companies rather than employees and companies i agree wow all right thank you so much adam it has been wonderful to chat to you and i appreciate your time thank you rachel